Genesis 5 we looked at last week about Seth's line after Cain killed Abel. God gave Adam and Eve another child named Seth. We, we noted that there were many other sons and daughters born to Adam and Eve. So why the particular attention to Seth's line? And we saw that Seth's line is the line through whom the Messiah would eventually come. And also we see that it was basically among Seth's line that there was a revival of true religion in these early days on the earth. And so that was basically Genesis 5. And now we're coming to Genesis 6. And we find that this revival in Seth's line was relatively short-lived. That though there was a renaissance of worship uh, of the true God, Yahweh, among Seth's descendants, we find that within a few generations, even of Enoch, who walked with the Lord and then was no more, for the Lord took him, even within a few generations of this godly man, this prophet, we find prevalent widespread, almost entire corruption on the face of the earth. Tonight we have a simple outline. The wickedness upon the earth, God's judgment is just, and Noah found favor by grace. That's basically what we're doing tonight. But before we get there, we have to make an extended aside. Because there are two somewhat puzzling things that come up in this text which we will attempt to deal with before we get to the body of the sermon tonight. The first is that Genesis 6 seems to attribute a change of mind in God. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Did God really make a mistake and come to realize that he had made a mistake? Did God come to see that his plan was not working out and own up to a failure to account for certain things and truly come to regret, truly come to be sorry that he had made mankind and backpedal off what he was trying to do. If we were to interpret it this way, it would fly in the face of everything we read in later scripture about who God is and the way that that God operates. And frankly, it would undermine our confidence in his eternal benevolence toward us. What's to say that God is not going to regret and that God is not going to be sorry that He brought us into relationship with Him? What is, if this is speaking properly and technically of God, what is to say that God isn't going to regret or be sorry that He has dealt with mankind in such a manner after something happens in the future that perhaps He hadn't accounted for? He comes to realize that dealing with us graciously in the New Covenant was, in fact, not a good idea after all. If God has a change of mind like this, truly, if we can really predicate that God regretted, that God was sorry that He had done this, that God changed His mind, that God made a mistake, as it were, for whatever reason, He failed to account for something, or whatever happened here, that God basically says, I did the wrong thing here. i got to back things up. 
if that's true, then we got big problems. Not only with the rest of Scripture, but even with our confidence in God's eternal benevolence toward us. But thankfully, this is not speaking properly of God. And when, we, when I say that this is not speaking properly of God, I don't, mean, I don't mean that it's not proper in the sense that it's inappropriate. It's appropriate for the Bible to speak this way of God. What I mean when I say improper is not in a technical sense. Something is not technically true. If you, if you say you paid your water bill and it was 60 bucks, but really it was $60.11, you spoke improperly of how much your water bill was. You're not speaking in a technical and precise way. That's what I mean when I say that the text here is speaking improperly of God. It's using a device called anthropopathism. You don't need to know that word, but the concept is important. It's attributing a human quality to God in order to communicate something true about who God is. So it's like when it says that uh, something is a sweet-smelling aroma to God, that it goes into God's nostrils. We don't think that God really has nostrils and that really something goes up and goes in His nostrils. Right? Or when it says that He brought the Israelites out of Egypt with His mighty right arm, we don't think that God literally grabbed them with His right arm, not His left arm, but His right arm, grabbed them up and brought them out of Egypt. We don't think that that's what's happening. That's called anthropomorphism, attributing human body parts to God. Anthropopathism is attributing human passions, human emotions to God. And these things are not uh, useless or meaningless. When, it, when we say that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt with His mighty right arm, it helps us understand something about what God did. He used His power. He used His strength. There's that idea of a son being carried in the strong arms of his father. Right Underneath are the everlasting arms, Moses writes later. So we understand something of what God did in that anthropomorphism that He brought them out by His mighty right hand. And anthropopathism helps us understand something of God's uh, feelings or emotions or passions, as it were. That though He he does not feel as we feel, that though He does not uh, have emotional ups and downs the way that we have emotional ups and downs and so on and so forth, we understand that there are strong dispositions in God toward sin, for example. That He hates sin. That He abominates sin. That when we read about God spewing someone out of His mouth, or when we read about uh, God being grieved to His heart about the state of the earth here in Genesis chapter 6, it's communicating something to us about the strong disposition that God has toward Sin. It doesn't mean that God is basically like a large man in the sky who has the same emotions as we do, but to a greater extent because He's a greater being. It doesn't mean that when we see those kinds of things in Scripture. It's not speaking properly about God, but it's helping us understand something. It's giving us a category to think through the, the dispositions that God has towards His creatures in particular instances and circumstances. So that's what's going on here when it says that. Anthropopathism. The next thing that comes up is the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. These were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown. Who are these guys? 
Well, we know for certain that these guys were giants. The Bible tells us as much later on. Numbers uh, 33. Pardon me? 13.33. Thank you. I was thinking I wrote down the wrong reference. Numbers 13. Yes. Numbers 13.33. Uh, there, This is the account of the spies coming back from spying out the land. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. In the previous verse, the spies say all the people that we saw in it are of great height. All the people that we saw in the land are of great height. So in that section, the spies at least say that all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan were of great height and they were Nephilim. And so that's the spies report. But lest we think that the spies are exaggerating... Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2, You are to cross over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? So the scripture explicitly tells us later on that these guys were giants. Not, not giants like 50 feet tall, but giants like 8 to 12 feet tall probably. Giants like Goliath, who incidentally was descended from some of these guys. Alright, so we have the Nephilim here in this passage in Genesis chapter 6. So we have to figure out, well, what do we do with these guys? And basically there are two schools of thought. The first school of thought is that when it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose, that the sons of God refers to angels. The way that that same phrase, the sons of God, is used in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, where it says that the sons of God came to present themselves before God and Satan also came with them. That's referring to angelic beings in Job chapter 1 and verse 6. The first school of thought is that it's referring to angelic beings here also in Genesis chapter 6. And so what happens is that the sons of God, fallen angels, see that the daughters of men, that is human women, were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And so the Nephilim are born out of these union between fallen angels and human women. And the Nephilim are born half essentially half angel or half demon and half man. And in favor of this argument or in favor of this school of thought is the use of the sons of God terminology elsewhere in scripture as referring to angels. It also explains the gigantism among the offspring that that kind of makes sense. I mean, we have all kinds of questions of how did the angels breed with human women? But if we suppose that that is what happened. It kind of makes sense that the offspring would be a little different than strictly human offspring. And it makes a plausible explanation of Jude 6 and 7 in which we read this. 
the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Listen, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, which, it, which means that the angels in verse 6 indulged in sexual immorality, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and the ESV translates it pursued unnatural desire, but the footnote will tell you that what it really says in the Greek is pursued other flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now listen, when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah, what did the men of the city do? They came to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we might have sex with them. That's what they did. So those men were angels, right? So they, the men in Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sex with angels. Right? So Jude 6 and 7, listen again. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued other flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, all of that to say, I think that there's actually a fair textual basis for the postulation that basically what's happening here in Genesis 6 is that fallen angels are breeding with, the, with human women and the Nephilim are a, are a sort of third type of creature that's half demon and half man and thus their gigantic size. That's one school of thought. Um, those are the pros against that position is Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30 in which Jesus says in the resurrection they, that is humans, neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Which many have interpreted to mean that the angels are non-sexual beings that don't marry one another and don't have intercourse with one another. So that is, that's the way that people argue against that other view. But the interpretation then that proponents of that view would bring back is this says like the angels in heaven. So it doesn't mean necessarily that they don't have the capacity to marry or to be given in marriage or to breed or copulate, but that the angels in heaven as Jude verse 6 would say um, the opposite of what Jude verse 6 says they do not um, they do stay within their own position and they don't pursue other flesh so Jesus might be making an argument based on the obedient angels that they should not have come down to pursue other flesh but the fallen angels did so in any case that's how that first school of thought goes the second school of thought goes like this When it says sons of God, it's referring to human worshippers of Yahweh. When it says sons of man, it's referring to human non-worshippers of Yahweh. 
So in other words, those who are the sons of men are simply, uh, or pardon me, the daughters of men are simply, simply humans, non-worshippers of Yahweh. Sons of God is used in a way that it might be more in a New Testament context as being the believers, those who are worshippers of Yahweh. And so what happens is just as Cain uh, and his line named their daughters, you know, beautiful, lovely, ornament, so on and so forth. The sons of God eventually were attracted to these beautiful women of Cain's line and the other lines and basically were led astray from the true worship of Yahweh by intermarrying with those who were not believers. In favor of that view would be the, the context. We're not, we don't really read anything about fallen angels breeding or anything like this in the prior context of Genesis chapter 6. We have a discussion of Seth's line and Cain's line. And in favor of this view would also be an interpretation of Matthew 22.30, which would posit that angels are non-sexual beings that don't marry, don't copulate, etc., etc. Against this view is, why were the children giants? So, I'm going to leave you in suspense on that one. But those are, those are, those are a couple of the options. Um, I read a book this week. It was very interesting. It was actually written by a Reformed Baptist pastor in Boulder, Colorado. We prayed for him this morning. His name is Doug Van Dorn. He's currently in Nepal with Heart Cry Missionary Society doing some work over there. But he wrote a book called Giants, Sons of the Gods. And um, the, uh, in his book, he, he argues for the former view. And it's a very interesting and fascinating book. In any case... How we resolve that issue with the Nephilim actually doesn't really drastically impact the meaning of the passage before us today. You could take either view and be well within orthodoxy on this point. What we see is that the wickedness of the earth is almost entire. Is almost as depraved as it can be. Calvinists sometimes talk about total depravity. And non-Calvinists criticize Calvinists for believing in total depravity because they, they say, well, people are not as bad as they possibly could be. And Calvinists say, yes, that's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means we're depraved in the totality of our being. Every facet of our being is affected by sin. So our minds are affected by sin. Our bodies are affected by sin. Our emotions are affected by sin. So on and so forth. <clears throat> but in this passage before us today, we see total depravity of a different sort. Or you could say utter depravity or complete depravity. What we see in this passage is an extreme example of evil. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's chapter 6 and verse 5. Now that, that might be a little hyperbole, especially when you factor in that Noah was on the earth and all the thoughts and intentions of Noah's heart were not evil continually. But it's still making a point that the earth had fallen into serious, serious corruption at this point. And we're, we're led to believe that Noah was literally the only worshiper of Yahweh on the earth at that time. That's pretty bad. 
So the wickedness of the earth was almost total, almost utter, almost complete. Whether corrupted by union with fallen angels, whether corrupted simply by the degeneration of their own sin, worshippers of Yahweh being led astray by unbelieving women, and eventually the whole human race following in, falling into idolatry, whatever the case, however they got there. The point is that in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <clears throat> the human race had sunk to a terrible low. That was the context. What does God do? He renders a judgment. And God's judgment is basically this. I will kill everyone and send them to hell. I will kill everyone and send them to hell. The Lord spares eight people, but everyone else, every living creature that moved on the land, obviously not sea creatures, they don't die in the flood, but every creature that moved on the land, dead. We need to understand that though this is severe, this is just. Though this is severe, this is just. God is not doing wrong by killing everyone on the earth and sending everyone on the earth to hell. God's not doing anything wrong. See, God is holy. And this is something that is not grasped or at least not functionally appreciated or not functionally accounted for in the way that many people think about God. God is holy. There is nothing we can compare God to. We can't say, well, holiness is basically like, if you imagine the nicest, kindest, sweetest, <coughs> elderly lady in your neighborhood <coughs> that gives you an idea of God's holiness she's so good compared to everyone else that that would be an utterly inadequate analogy God is holy and there's nothing that we can really compare in order to describe God's holiness utter perfection the slightest offense against God's law whether as we spoke about this morning, by commission, doing things that we ought not to do, or even by omission, failing to do the things that we should do. The slightest offense against God's law deserves to be punished by a finite being in eternity in hell forever. That's God's holiness. We always... We think that that is an overreaction. We tend to think that that's an overreaction. Many people tend to think that that's an overreaction. Many people tend to think that God is somehow unjust for holding people to that standard. Even under the name of Christianity, people have rethought salvation, rethought atonement, rethought concepts like righteousness in order to account for or pardon me, in order to work around such a definition of holiness. That God is pleased to accept sincere obedience. 
Yes, you do make some mistakes, but if you're really sincere, God will accept you. You know, or if you, if you, you hear this especially with, with respect to unreached people groups, people that never heard about Jesus. Well, if they walk according to the light that they're given, if they do the best with what they know, God, God won't hold them responsible for what they don't know. God will hold them responsible for, for what they do know and what, what they do with that. Listen, every offense against God's law is punishable by an eternity in hell. People, by the way, do have God's law, though it's fragmented and distorted. It's written on their hearts as a function of creation. As a descendant of Adam, everyone has God's law written on their hearts. As Romans tells us, where there is no law, there is no sin. And yet you see, and where there is no sin, there's no death. And yet you see death reigning in every culture, which means every culture has sin, right? And that means every culture has law, because where there is no law, there is no sin. So anyway, that argument falls another way, but it also falls this way. It, it replaces pure, total, perpetual obedience to God's law with sincerity. You see the same thing in constructions of the gospel that go something like this. Jesus died to wipe your slate clean. And now, if you try your best, God will accept you. Right? And so you ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins and give you a new start. And then now you try your best to be righteous in God's eyes so that He will accept you. Again, it's failing to account for the fact that even if you could somehow have your slate wiped clean from today, you could not live a righteous enough life to please a holy God from now till the day of your death, even with a new nature and the help of the Holy Spirit. You could not do it. God is holy. And the slightest infraction of His law is punishable by eternal death in hell. So God is not doing anything wrong with killing everyone on earth and sending people to hell. Remember, He is the potter and we are the clay. Brother read for us earlier in the service from Romans chapter 9. We read later in that same chapter, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We are the clay and God is the potter. We do not have the right to accuse God of injustice. So God is not doing anything wrong in this story with killing everyone on earth and sending people to hell. Now consider Noah's case. Here are two reasons why I'm going to ask you to imagine that God destroyed Noah and all the other seven members of his family. I'm going to ask you to imagine that in a moment. But here are two reasons why imagining that has to be hypothetical. One is that the promise that the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head 
meant that God was obligated by His own word to save some life, to preserve some life. Because God had promised that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head, God could not simultaneously honor His word and destroy everybody from the face of the earth. So God had to preserve someone. Secondly, remember what God said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? God had promised that whoever does well, that is, approaching God on God's terms, placing faith in the promises of a Messiah, approaching Him with a substitutionary sacrifice and atonement for sin, so on and so forth, everything we talked about a couple of weeks ago, everybody who walks with Him by faith will be accepted. Because God had entered into those terms of relationship, had promulgated those terms of relationship with the human race, God had, again, obligated Himself, in a sense, to deal kindly with Noah, at least in the afterlife. God couldn't, God couldn't because Noah was a worshiper of Yahweh and approached Him on His terms by faith, etc. God couldn't wipe Noah out with a flood and send him to hell. That would be unjust because it would be God not following through on His promise. So, we're talking hypothetical. But I still want you to imagine, those factors aside, just set those two factors aside for a moment. Did God owe Noah salvation from the flood? If God had not promised the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head, and if God had not promised that whoever approaches Him by faith will be saved from their sin. God had not done those two things. Would God have owed Noah salvation from the flood? The answer to that question delineates the difference between true religion and false. Justice Justice is what is owed. Now, that could mean what is owed because of a prior promise. As I just explained, it would be unjust for God to literally wipe out everybody on the face of the earth after He promised that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head because that would be God going back on His word. So in that sense, it would be unjust to do that. And it would be unjust for God to say that you may walk with me by faith, that you may offer these sacrifices as an atonement uh, for your sin, at least a typological atonement for your sin, and yet not forgive sin when those promises or when those sacrifices were offered up. It would be unjust for God to go back on His word in those ways. But strictly speaking, what is strictly owed without any prior pre-commitment from God to mankind. What is strictly owed to a sinner like Noah, remember he's called righteous in this text, but this is a relative righteousness over against the depravity in the rest of the world. Strictly speaking, what was owed to a sinner like Noah is death and hell. That's it. Not salvation on an ark. Well, you could say, well, Noah was, Noah was not like everybody around him. 
That's right. But he fell short of God's holiness. But Noah was so much better than these people around him. Yeah, on a relative scale he was. But he sinned against the holy God. You see, not only did the rest of the world fall short of God's holy standards, but Noah fell short of God's holy standards too. Strictly speaking, God did not owe Noah anything. And God will not or would not grant Noah favor at the expense of his holiness. In other words, God would not compromise his holiness in order to show Noah favor. In other words, he wouldn't say, I normally don't make any exceptions to the breach of my law. But with you, Moses, or pardon me, with you, Noah, I'm going to make an exception. Because I'm going to grade on a curve in this instance. Everybody else is so wicked and so depraved, but you're doing fairly well. So I'm going to overlook the demands of my holy law in this case and be gracious to you. God, will, God doesn't deal out favor like that. Throughout the whole scripture, that's not how God works. Now this is important to see because many people think that that is how God works. Many people think that God owed a guy like Noah salvation on the ark. And many people think that God owes them salvation on an ark, as it were. That when the flood of God's wrath comes at the end of this age, people like Hitler will go to hell, but people who are pretty decent will go to heaven because God owes them salvation. Many people think along these lines. What they're failing to account for is God's holiness. There is no way, no possible way, there is no possible way for a holy God to pardon a sinner while compromising His holiness. There is no possible way for a holy God to pardon a sinner while compromising His holiness. Because that's a contradiction in terms. To compromise His holiness would mean that He is no longer holy. So there is no possible way for a holy God to pardon a sinner while compromising His holiness. So what we need to see in this passage is that Noah's righteousness was not the basis of God's dealing graciously with him. It could not have been. God could not have been dealing graciously with Noah on the basis of Noah's righteousness. Again, that's a contradiction in terms. If he was dealing graciously with him, then it wasn't on the basis of his works. Because if it was on the basis of his works, it would not be gracious, it would be just. God would be giving Noah what he owed him. So God was not dealing with Noah graciously here in this passage on the basis of his works. And he could not have been dealing with Noah justly on the basis of Noah's works. Because He is holy. You understand? So God had to be dealing graciously with Noah 
on the basis of somebody else's works other than Noah himself. Somebody who had perfect righteousness. Somebody who was a substitute. You understand what I'm driving at? When we begin to think rightly and carefully, we see the Gospel throughout all of Scripture. Not just coming on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, but all the way back here. We either have to postulate that God accepted Noah based on Noah's works, in which case God is not holy, or we have to postulate uh, that God is not holy and accepted Noah on his works. Both of those things fly in the face of all the rest of Scripture. If God is holy, and if Noah was a sinner, and those two things are inescapable from the rest of Scripture, then God could not have been dealing with Noah on the basis of Noah's righteousness. God is a holy God. That's why He was just and right to destroy the whole world, excepting Noah and seven others. And God is a gracious God, which is why He dealt graciously with Noah. But we have to... This text posits a bit of a dilemma here, which is how can a holy God deal graciously with Noah without compromising His holiness? This, of course, resolves itself. This tension resolves itself later in Scripture. This is a tension that presents itself again and again throughout the Old Testament. How can God deal graciously with Abel and yet be holy? How can God deal graciously with a sinner like Enoch and yet be holy? How can a, gracious, how can a holy God deal with Noah and yet be holy? How can a holy God deal with Abraham and Moses and David? How can a holy God deal graciously with sinners and be holy? This is a tension that's present throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 34, we read this tension, we read about this tension explicitly. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger (coughs) and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Listen. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, that's attention. God will by no means clear the guilty, and yet He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is a a tension that arrives. Arises out of the Old Testament storyline. God is holy. Mankind sinned against Him in the fall. Mankind inherited a corrupt nature from which come corrupt actions and words and thoughts and so on and so forth. God does not change. He's just as holy all along. And yet God deals graciously with sinners. 
Right? He's obviously not giving them strictly what they deserve. So how can God deal graciously with sinners and yet be a holy God? See, Noah is a case study in this. Noah is a case study in this. This tension is only resolved in the New Testament in the arrival of Christ Jesus on the scene. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Listen, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. If Jesus never came to offer up His life as a righteous substitute in the place of unrighteous sinners, if Jesus never came to be propitiation for sinners who deserve God's wrath, what would we say about God's righteousness? We would have to say that God was unrighteous in dealing with Abel. That God was unrighteous in dealing with Noah. God is unrighteous in dealing with Abraham and Moses and so on and so forth. That He has compromised His holiness in order to deal graciously with these guys. But in Christ Jesus, this resolves. Because the holy God demands payment for sin. He he demands punishment for sin. And He demands perfect and perpetual obedience. Abel didn't offer those things. Noah didn't offer those things. But Christ Jesus came and offered those things for Abel and for Noah. And so we see that tension in the storyline resolve with the arrival of Christ Jesus on the scene. So, strictly speaking, God bringing Noah onto the ark was not... based in justice as if it would have been unjust in and of itself for Noah to perish in the flood along with everyone else but it was grace it was more than what was deserved it was better than what was deserved Noah did not earn rather God dealt with Noah graciously on the terms of relationship that he had proclaimed with mankind, that men could walk with Him by faith. And Hebrews 11 tells us that that's exactly what Noah did. That Noah related to God by faith. And God dealt with Noah then, as He dealt with Abel, on the basis of the Messiah who would be to come, who would offer up a perfect and spotless sacrifice in His place, and who would clothe Noah as he clothed Abel in his righteousness. And so we see the whole storyline resolve here. So God did not deal with Noah on the basis of justice, but God dealt with Noah on the basis of grace. Now as I mentioned a few moments ago, 
God's promises necessitated the preservation of Eve's seed until the Messiah came to crush the serpent's head. And God had previously obligated Himself to save those, to be gracious to those, whoever would come to Him on His own terms, namely by grace through faith. And so Noah, coming to God by grace through faith, had God's pre-commitment to be gracious to him. And God chose that Noah would be among those preserved from among the human race until the Messiah's seed would come. These are gracious things. And we have confidence in our day and age in similar grace. That though God is holy, just as holy as He was in Genesis chapter 6, that though on one hand God would be just, strictly speaking, to just strike down all of our children, all of our posterity, cut everybody off, return, judge the earth, save nobody, uh, etc., etc., on one hand, save nobody more, rather. On one hand, that would be just. God would be right in doing that. But what we find in the Scripture is that just as God's promises necessitated preservation of Eve's seed until the Messiah came, so God's promises necessitate the preservation of the church until the Messiah comes. And so we can be sure, we can be sure that the future of the church is actually promising that God is going to preserve His people until Christ returns for His bride. And just as God promised in Noah's day to be gracious to whoever came to Him on His terms, namely by grace through faith, so God has promised to be gracious in our day and age to whoever comes to Him on His terms, by grace, through faith. And so strictly speaking, though strictly speaking, God owes the human race nothing. From this day forward, if He saved no one and let the church die out and then came back in a millennium to judge a thousand years of depravity and debauchery on the earth and send everybody who lived in that millennium to hell, strictly speaking, God would be just to do that. But just as God's pre-commitments precluded Him from doing that in Noah's day, so God's pre-commitments preclude Him from doing that in our day. That God has promised that there will be a church, that He will build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail. And that there will be those who are alive on this earth when that trumpet sounds and Christ descends from the sky with the cry of an archangel. That there will be those who believe in Him, who as 1 Thessalonians tells us will be caught up to meet Him in the air at that time. There will be those. God has pre-committed Himself therefore to preserving the church until that day. And God has pre-committed Himself that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. So until that day, we have God's pre-commitment 
to save. Whoever will look to Him in faith, whoever will trust in Him, whoever will rest in Him. God, we have God's pre-commitment that He will save. And so what we see is that God's holiness is the same from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. And God's grace is the same all the way from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. God is simultaneously a holy God and God is simultaneously a holy God and a gracious God. And His holiness and His grace, the tension that arises between His holiness and His grace, always resolve, whether in an Old Testament passage or in a New Testament passage, how can a holy God deal graciously with sinners? That tension always resolves in Christ Jesus throughout all of Scripture. And so... Though in some ways our situation is different than Noah's, there's more than one true worshiper of Yahweh. We're not even led necessarily to believe that his wife or his children were worshippers of Yahweh at that time. So literally Noah might have been one out of eight that were saved in the ark who was actually a worshiper of Yahweh at that time. We read later that his son Shem was a worshiper of Yahweh, so maybe him and Shem. We don't know, I'm just speculating. But we're not in such dire, bleak circumstances. And I, for one, do not personally know any Nephilim. Uh, so in some ways, our circumstances differ from Noah's. But in some ways, our circumstances are exactly the same. There's a holy God in heaven who is wrathful towards sin and who has determined to come in judgment for sin but who has pre-committed Himself to being gracious to everyone who will turn to Him in faith and to preserve uh, His people uh, and bring them through that day of wrath, bring them through that day of judgment. And so we live in, in that sense in the same world that Noah lived in under the same circumstances with the same threats and the same promises before us.